All right, well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. We're going to begin in chapter 18. 2 Kings 18. And we'll pray, Father, I just ask you, Lord, you'll open our hearts and our understanding. Help us to see you in a clear way and what it means to trust you fully. And I just thank you that you'll do that for us today. And we ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we'll look at 2 Kings 18. We'll start with the first eight verses. It says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Neheshton. And he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So we're looking here at chapter 18 today, but the previous chapter to the one we're reading, chapter 17, what it tells us, just to give the context of what we're talking about, it talks about the fall of Samaria. And Samaria, for those of you that don't know, was the capital of northern Israel. Israel had been divided since the death of Solomon. And you had ten northern tribes that com composed northern Israel. And two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, composed the southern kingdom. And I've said this before, but I'll repeat it again. Israel, from Jeroboam on, there was never one good king. They were all corrupt. Every king in Israel. It wasn't that way in Judah. So what happened, Assyria came and sieged northern Israel. They laid the siege on Samaria, the capital. And in 722, Samaria fell and they took all the people into exile, took them to foreign lands. And then the Assyrians, they brought in people to replace the Israelites from all over, from Babylon and all over. They brought them in to settle in Israel. And what happened then is that's where you get the Samaritans. They became synchronistic. In other words, they combined their religions with worshiping the Lord. And so you have that famous line in 2 Kings 17, they feared the Lord, these people they brought in, yet they served their own gods. And that continued on into the Samaritans up till Jesus' day, and they weren't worshipers of the true God. So Hezekiah... He was king. He reigned in Judah when Samaria fell. He saw it happen. He, he saw what happened. 21 years later, Sennacherib, he's the next king of Assyria. He attempts to capture Jerusalem. It's in 701 B.C. So what we're reading here in chapter 18 takes place in 701 B.C. The thing is, there was a great difference between godly King Hezekiah and all of these ungodly kings in Israel. And I want to look at Hezekiah today, and in particular, his faith in God, especially as it pertains to Sennacherib. So this story of Sennacherib that we have, we're looking at it here in 2 Kings 18 and 19. He attempted to lay siege to Jerusalem. He wanted to destroy it. He wanted to take all the people captive like they had done to northern Israel. 
This story is told in detail in three places in the Old Testament. I don't know that any other narrative is told in full detail in three places in the Old Testament. So we have two full chapters here in 2 Kings. We have one chapter in Chronicles, even though Hezekiah has the biggest space of any of the kings that's talked about in Chronicles. Chronicles, though, it more emphasizes his restoration of the temple, his reform of bringing the Passover back. Then we also have two full chapters of this exact same story in the book of Isaiah. Three times the story's told in detail. And when I see something like that, that means God must have something that he's trying to tell his people. And what this is, we'll see today, it's a message of trust. What it means to trust him. And so we'll begin here talking about this trust or faith. And the first thing we see is faith works because of a godly life. And we see that in these first eight verses. In Judah, there were some godly kings. Four, if you want to say, maybe there was five godly kings in Judah. The last godly king in Judah before Hezekiah was Jehoshaphat. That was 137 years before Hezekiah came on the scene. In between there, there were several that were bad, but there were four that it said this of them. It says, they did right in the eyes of the Lord. So you have Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, and Jotham. But here's the thing. There was an asterisk, if I can put it this way, beside each of their names. And here's what the asterisk was for every one of them. However, there's this however. The high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. But here comes this bright spot into Judah, Hezekiah. And look what it says. So verses 1 to 3 now. It came to pass the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, that's his father. His father was the most, one of the most corrupt, wicked kings you could get. Terrible. And you could say he didn't fall from the tree. He fell far from the tree. He was nothing like his daddy. He began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother must have had a good influence on him. You wonder, how did he become the man he was? His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. So there's no asterisks besides the name of Hezekiah. He was just like David. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, period. It says that there's no qualifications. But here it says, look what it says in verse 4, that he removed not only the high places, look what it says, so he did what the other kings hadn't done, removed the high places, but also it says he broke the sacred pillars. Now that was the symbols of the male deity. And then it says he cut down the wooden image, and that word wooden image is the female deity Asherah. But here's what I thought was interesting. At 25 years old, he had the guts, and I say guts, to smash the bronze serpent in pieces. You think about it, that went all the way back to Moses' day. You think that wasn't like something, a precious relic to the Israelites? But they were, it says they were offering incense to it. And he's like, oh, I'm getting rid of every idol in the land. And that took some guts, I would say, wouldn't you? I mean, it's one thing, you see everybody doing something and you're going to take a stand against that and say, no, that's not happening anymore. And this is from Moses, brought healing to the nation. And he says, ah, smash that up. So what we see is Hezekiah, he had a zeal and a heart for the Lord to abolish all false worship. And he didn't care what anybody thought, did he? So Gideon did what? He cut down the groves of his dad and those idols at night. Hezekiah is doing it in broad daylight. He's bold. He's bold. 
And I think we need to see, and I don't see a lot of it, I think we need to see some young men rise up today that are not going to be led along with this tide of this compromised Christianity, which has overtaken our country. All the churches, it really is. And are willing to smash, so to speak, the idols of our American Christian cultures. Those that aren't going to excuse sin. Aren't going to excuse sin. They're not going to excuse fornication. They're not going to excuse living together. They're not going to excuse internet pornography, divorce, social drinking, which is becoming really popular now. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. And on and on and on. And I'm saying that's what Hezekiah was. A 25-year-old young man that became king. And he was not timid. Not timid at all. So Paul told young Timothy right before he died, he said this. He says, I know you have a genuine faith. He told you read 2 Timothy 1. That was written right before Paul had his head taken off. And he said, that genuine faith came from your mother and your grandmother. And he says, therefore, I remind you, Timothy, I want you to stir up that gift, the Holy Spirit, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Because this is what we all need to see in this day coming up. It says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fear is a sin. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but the Holy Spirit in us, the spirit he's given us is of power and of love and of a sound mind. Because if we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, what does it say in Proverbs? It says the fear of man does what? It brings a snare and it keeps you from trusting the Lord. It keeps you from being like Hezekiah. It'll keep you from being blessed. So he's zealous for the holy worship of God, Hezekiah, but the writer here in Kings doesn't say that was his greatest attribute. His greatest attribute, according to this writer, was his trust. Look at verse 5, because it says he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so much so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Now, what's interesting here is in the English, they do this so it reads smoother. But actually, if you look in verse 5, where it, really what should come first is where it says, in the Lord God of Israel. And after that, in the Hebrew, it says, he trusted. And the reason that is, is for emphasis. It's emphasizing the object of his trust. That's what's important. The Lord God of Israel, Almighty God, he is who he trusted. That's what you get out of the Hebrew. And I think that's a little bit different. He's the focal point of our trust, isn't he? God is. And you keep him focal and these big trials can sometimes become smaller, can't they? If you keep God at the center. But so nobody trusted like Hezekiah. That's, that's an amazing statement there. Nobody before or after him. None of the kings of Judah. Not Asa. Not Jehoshaphat. We've heard a lot about him. Not Josiah. Hezekiah had great faith. And how was that? What, what was it that gave him this great faith? Look, it goes on to tell us that if we look in verse 6. Here's how his faith played out. It says, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And where it says he held fast to the Lord, that's the Hebrew word that means to stick, to cling to, to cleave. It goes clear back to Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother. And it says he shall cleave to his wife. And that means he's going to cling, he's going to stick to her, never to leave. That's the way that gorilla glue we said that God's ordained our marriages to be. Divorce was never God's plan. You stick to your wife, you cling to your wife. And Hezekiah did that with the Lord. He never left the Lord. 
never left him, clung on his strong right arm, so to speak, all of his life. But not only that, we love to read about the faith part of this whole thing where he defeats Sennacherib and goes before the Lord and all of this gets a word from Isaiah. But we got to see the, the reason he was able to do that and the reason Jerusalem was delivered was because he got things right with the Lord. He'd gotten sin out of his life. There wasn't any sin in his life. He didn't live in sin. Now, he wasn't perfect. There was defects there, but he had, like David, a heart for God. David wasn't perfect either, yet he's called a man after God's own heart. Because when they go off, they repent. They're quick to repent and get things right. That's the way David was. And what was the result of that? Verses 7 and 8. The Lord, because he got things right, got sin out of his life, dealt with idols. It says the Lord was with him. And I mean, that's everything right there, the first part of verse 7. That is everything. Isn't it? If God's with you, you don't need anything else. And that's what it says. The Lord was with him and he prospered wherever he went. Prospered in all things. And so if we want our faith to work and be able to trust in the promises God has given us, if we want to see him and don't we, don't we want to see him work supernaturally in our lives? Don't we want that? Then you and I, we need to deal with sin. Whatever it is the Lord's dealing with us about, it's going to be different for everybody. We've got to deal with that. And when you deal with that, then trust is easy. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. It's not a heavy burden, something you hate. He says, I say, trust will be easy. Your joy will return and will prosper. Here's what the first verse of that song, Trust and Obey. We don't sing that song, but I just wrote down the first verse here to it. And here's what it says. I think it pictures this well. It says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. And the chorus says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And all of us in here that are Christians know when you're walking with the Lord and you're conscious that I'm putting him first in my life and you're trusting and obeying him, there is a joy and a peace that's about you that's not when you know you're not doing that, right? <laughs> Your conscience is always bothering you. But that's what Hezekiah did. And the second thing I want to see after that, a godly life will enable us to exercise faith. But the second thing, a godly life of faith, it doesn't shield us from trials. And we have that in verses 9 to 16. And basically, verses 9 to 12, what they do is they repeat what was already said, as I told you in chapter 17, that Samaria fell into the hands of the Assyrians. We're not going to read that, but here's what I want to say. Why did the writer of Kings, if he just wrote all of this in chapter 17, why would he have to repeat it here in chapter 18? Why would he do that? Why, why would he say it all again? And I think the reason that he did that is, first of all, he wants to let us know how much courage it took for Hezekiah to rebel against the king of Samaria. Because like I said, he'd seen Israel and Samaria fall. And the fortified cities surrounding Jerusalem, these fortified cities that were armed and sort of a protection for him, he watched them all fall too. And he had heard about all these other nations that had fallen before the Assyrians. So he's reminding us here that this guy, he's got courage. He's not like everybody else. And he's not going to wilt under pressure with these people. So, you know, there's the old gospel course. I heard somebody say this. I thought it was good. It is no secret what God can do, what he's done for others he'll do for you. 
And I think that would apply. It just you have to just exchange the name of God for the king of Assyria. It's no secret what the king of Assyria will do, what he's done to others. He'll do to you. And Hezekiah would have known that, wouldn't he? And the other reason, though, I think is that they're showing why he's writing here, why Samaria, why northern Israel fell is to contrast how God has blessed Hezekiah and Judah Comparing that to what happened to northern Israel, because there is a clear reason why northern Israel fell. And look, it's in verses 11 and 12 here in this chapter, if you would look. Verse 11, chapter 18, it says, Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Halah and by Habor, the river of Gozan, in the city of the Medes. Why did this happen? Verse 12. Because it wasn't because they wouldn't pay tribute. It wasn't because they didn't have a mighty army. It's because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded them, and they would neither hear nor do them. That's why they went into captivity. And he says, I sent you prophet after prophet. This went on for hundreds of years, God put up with it. And they rebelled, they refused to hear, they wouldn't walk in his ways until finally the hammer fell. But that is why. That's why he wants us to see. And we just read about Hezekiah is just the opposite. He cleaved to the Lord. He walked in all of his commandments. And he didn't fall, did he? I mean, God blessed him. So the first thing I'd say you should do if something's not going right in your life is examine your heart. That's all of us, isn't it? Examine your heart. Why is this happening? Not just it's an automatically a trial or get everybody to pray for you. Maybe God's saying, no, you got some sin. I'm speaking to you and only you. And I'm saying you need to deal with this sin in your life. That's why you're having this problem. I'm trying to get your attention. Because spiritual rebellion, that, like I said, that is the reason that Israel fell. So what we have here moving on is Hezekiah, though, he realizes one thing. He realizes he is alone, all alone in facing Assyria because there is nobody can help him out at all. All his allies, including northern Israel, they're either wiped out or powerless. And so if he's going to continue to serve the Lord, he's got to have his life right. And he can't maintain a relationship with this wicked king of Assyria. So here's the point I'm trying to make with this second point. So just because you're walking in the light, you're walking in obedience, and you're trusting the Lord, you're being faithful to Him, that doesn't mean that a hard trial won't come your way. It very well can. And Peter says, what? Don't be surprised. For when that fiery trial comes your way, which is to try you, he says, don't be shocked, don't be surprised when it comes knocking on your door like it's an unexpected visitor. And that's what happens here with Hezekiah. Now, the one thing I want to say, if you read this account in verses 14 through 16, Hezekiah there attempts to pay off. You know, they were already under tribute under his father. And he's like, look, all right, I'll pay. He sees them coming. I'll pay you tribute. And he demands this exorbitant amount of money, all this silver and gold. And Hezekiah actually strips the gold off the doors of the temple. He's basically giving him everything. First and second kings, they view draining the temple and all the treasures. They don't view that in a nice way. And it's really viewed in a negative way. And in a sense, you could say Hezekiah is wavering in his faith. This bribe he attempts to give Sennacherib, it doesn't work. And all it does is put him in a position where he's going to have to fully trust the Lord. So where it says back in verse 5 that we read for he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that none like him before or after. When it says that. It's talking about his overall life. 
And that's just like with us. There may be times you're trusting God and God's going to come through for you, but there may be moments where you waver. That doesn't disqualify you because we looked at Abraham last week and we saw Abraham, he wavered too, didn't he, with Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael may live. And yet the accounts you read of him in Romans chapter 4 is that he was fully persuaded. And it says he didn't waver because that was his overall walk with the Lord. His overall walk with the Lord is he had a heart, I want to trust you. And that trust grew. So your trust, sometimes you may waver. That's not a, to give up and quit. And God's going to give up on you. That's to get back on it, right? That's what had to happen to Hezekiah here. He messed up because he tries to give this bribe and it doesn't work. And he's going to get his faith tested in a big time way. The bribe didn't work. The third thing I want to see is that when you are committed to trusting the Lord, you can expect it to be challenged. So here the king of Assyria sends this great army against Jerusalem. Look in verse 17. It says, Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshaki from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. Sends this great army there. Now Sennacherib, <laughs> if you read it, he was supposed to go away. It's like, here, I'll give you everything I got. I'll give you all my money. You just leave me. And Sennacherib had agreed to that. And here he is. He's coming right back with an army. It's like, well, would you trust somebody like that anyways? Why should he trust him? He's not a godly king, the king of Assyria. So here he is. You know, the devil never leaves, does he, when you compromise? Does he ever leave when you compromise? He doesn't care. He'll just keep coming at you. So he sends out three men to talk to him. And look, beginning in verse 19, look what happens. It says, Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words, he says. That's hard. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look. You're trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, well, we trust in the Lord our God. Well, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and say to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? He says, now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? Because he says, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So get the picture. Here is the Assyrian army surrounding Jerusalem. I mean, they're all around the house knocking at the door, big, bad, and ugly. And that's the way it is a lot of times. You decide you're going to trust the Lord, I'm going to get my life right, and all of a sudden here's a major trial facing you. Health issues, rebellious children, you've got a marriage breakdown, emotional crisis, you've lost your job, you've got this anger problem, lust, depression, when that's all surrounding you and facing you, the devil always has something to say about it, doesn't he? Just like Rabshakeh does here. This Rabshakeh guy is well trained. He knows which buttons to push with the Israelites. And he knows how to mess with their minds. That's what he's doing. Because look what he says there in verse 19 again. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Now say to Hezekiah, Thus says the gate, 
great king. So he's like, who's this Hezekiah guy? He doesn't even address him as King Hezekiah. He talks about himself. I'm the great king. I'm the one conquering everybody. Now say this to old Hezekiah. He's a nobody. And he says, what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war. He says, they are just words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? What confidence is this in whom you trust? And now on whom do you trust? And the emphasis there is on the word now. Now who are you trusting? Now that the problem's here, whom do you trust when it's staring you right in the face? Because that's the question that gets raised in our minds and by other people for us a lot of times. Who is it that's going to deliver you? Because he's saying, hey, Assyria, I'm no longer just an idea. I'm no longer just a thought, something that might happen. I'm here and I'm staring you in the face and I'm a real problem that's coming. And so that's what happens a lot of times. Like we hear a faith message and it resonates with, we read, surely he has borne our pains. And we say amen until the pain is on us. Then the trial begins. And then who are you going to trust becomes the question. What are you going to do about that? Or my God shall supply all of my needs. Amen. And then all of a sudden you haven't worked for a couple weeks. And the bills are starting to pile up. And there's that voice that always comes to you at night, doesn't it? Now on whom do you trust when that trial? That's what's going on here with them, isn't it? That's what we'd be learning. So look, when you look at verse 22... Let's read that again. He says in verse 22, But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? And that's the equivalent of saying he's taken away everything that would help you. These guys that will help you, Hezekiah's taken it away. And you say you're going to trust in the Lord. That's the stuff the Lord has given you to help you. And that's what we hear today. Don't we? You say you trust in the Lord. Well, didn't he give you brains and banks and hospitals and medication and psychologists and alcohol to learn how to cope and so on? And the preacher's taking it all away. Really? I hope it's because you saw it in the word and you said, this is what I'm committing myself to between me and the Lord, because I see it clearly in the word. Well, yeah, that's what we're going to teach. We're going to teach what this is saying. So the central issue here in verses 19 to 24 is one word. What's the word that just keeps coming up? Trust, isn't it? The Hebrew word for trust is used in these verses seven times. And Rabshakeh is mocking the Jews for trusting the Lord. That's what he's doing, isn't he? He says, you say you're going to defeat me. He tells them, he says, what you're saying there, they are empty words. There's nothing to them. You say you're trusting the Lord. He's going to do this and that for you. It's the devil or people will say those are empty words. There's nothing to them. You really mean to say you're trusting the Lord and you have the nerve to think it will work. And he goes on to say, he's the one that sent me to destroy you. That's what the guy says. And isn't that the way it seems sometimes? That's the way the devil speaks to anyone foolish enough, quote unquote, to trust the Lord. He'll either speak them to your mind or he'll be sure to send a loved one, a neighbor, whoever, whoever to let you know you're a fool and headed for defeat. But here, what is the battle? What's the battle? The battle is a battle of words, isn't it? 
Whose words will you trust? There again, when you look back in verses 19 to 20, that's what it says. What confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for They are just mere words. Mere words, he says. So what were these mere words that Hezekiah had spoken to Israel, to Judah, that they were trusting in? So if you would, put something there in 2 Kings and turn back to 2 Chronicles. This is the other account. It gives a little bit more. Turn back to 2 Chronicles 32. It's all a battle of words. Whose words will you believe? Look in 32 and verse 1, it kind of confirms what I was saying earlier, that he was faithful. But be, and after these deeds of faithfulness, 2 Chronicles 32.1, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He's saying Hezekiah hadn't done anything wrong, hadn't done a thing. He was a faithful king, being obedient to the Lord, trusting him. And after these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Israel, he came and entered Judah, a trial. And he encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. And thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, Well, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And he strengthened himself, built up all the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers, and built another wall outside. Also he repaired the millow in the city of David, and made weapons and shields in abundance. And then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him, and did what? To him in the open square of the city gate. And it says he gave them encouragement. Words of encouragement. And here's what he said to them. Verse 7, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, why? For there are more with us than with him. With him is just an arm of flesh. He says, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And then look what it says in the end. And the people were strengthened by what? The words. I'm saying it's a battle of words. Words are critical by the words of Hezekiah, king of of Judah. So just like the words of that Rabshakeh were meant to discourage and dishearten the people, the words of a godly man that knew what it was to trust the Lord encouraged the people. It said it encouraged them, strengthened them, gave them something they could lean on. They didn't have to be afraid. And words are critical. Like I said, they move people. Hitler conquered most of Europe. How did he do that? Well, armies, yes. But he came to power and stayed in power through his rhetoric. He deceived a nation through the power of words. And yet a short, dumpy Englishman used words to inspire a nation, England, to resist and overcome him. Those words were critical on both sides, weren't they? Words were used to deceive and get people to follow him, just like what happened with the Antichrist. But words were also used to get courage into people and cause them to resist and overcome. And that's the way it'll be when we conquer our enemy, we conquer him through our words. Revelation 12, 11 says, They overcame him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. You want to have faith? you got to be to where I don't love my life to the death. I'll trust the Lord to the death. You read all the accounts, 
Even this account here with Hezekiah. You think these people weren't in danger of losing their lives? And King Hezekiah wasn't going to lose his life by trusting the Lord? It's the same with Asa, the same with Jehoshaphat. These huge armies coming on. You think those armies were going to leave anybody alive? And they went out. Jehoshaphat went out with nothing but singers in front of him. No weapons. That's pretty defenseless. And he said he's standing before God. It's just me and my wife and our children. We're standing there looking to you, Lord, to help us. That's pretty defenseless, I'd say. That really happened. They put their lives on the line. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. That's taken out of Revelations 12, 11, the overcomers here in the end times. And Job, it says Job's friends told him he used words to encourage people. Job 4, 4, he says, one told Job, your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you have strengthened the feeble knees. Our words to encourage one another in the faith, not talk anybody out of a trial, but encourage them in their trial that God is faithful. Encourage them with the word. Proverbs 16, 24 says, pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. It's a lot better than hearing backbiting, criticism, negative talk, isn't it? Pleasant words. Honeycomb and their health to your bones. Pleasant words are encouraging words. So look again, look at that verse 8 in 2 Chronicles 32. The people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He's saying, the Lord our God, he will help us and he will fight our battles. Be encouraged. Amen. That's what he's telling them. So if you go back to 2 Kings 18, begin reading here in verse 26. And we'll read through verse 35. Look what it says then. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshaki, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. So he's been talking to all these Jews and they're standing on the wall and he's speaking to them in Hebrew and getting them upset potentially. And he said, please speak to your servants in Aramaic for we understand it and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshaki said to them, as my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you. Then the Rabshaki stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and spoke saying, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. For he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, he tells him. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present, and come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. And he says it again, but do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. 
This is like his second little speech he's given here. And there's two primary themes in this second speech by the great Rabshaki. <laughs> he doesn't end up being that great. The first thing he is, don't you listen to Hezekiah. Don't let him deceive you. And he does that in verse 29. He says, do not let, verse 29, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Verse 30, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Verse 31, don't listen to Hezekiah. And down in verse 32, do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you. Ah, don't let that preacher tell you to trust the Lord. Don't let him persuade you to trust the Lord. It's not going to work. He's deceiving you. He's got problems. And he goes on, the second great theme and the second word that's used a lot is he says, no matter what Hezekiah says, the Lord cannot deliver you. And the word deliver is used seven times. The word trust was used before. This time it's the word deliver. Seven times. He tells them, he says, listen, I'm telling you all, Rabshakeh, I'm speaking in your tongue so you all know this. Y'all all sitting on the wall, I'm speaking to you in Hebrew. He's making empty promises of deliverance. He's saying, but look at the good life that I'll give you. And that's what he tells them in verses 31 to 32. He says, you can stay here for a little bit and then I'm going to take you off to a land that's just like the one you came from and you'll have vineyards. I mean, it's just going to be a life of luxury. Right. <laughs> I mean, like that's the way it's going to be. You know, talk about empty promises. I mean, I don't know if y'all study much, but... But when Hitler promised the Jews, he said, these trains are going to take you to a place where there are better work camps, better conditions than what you have not now. And the sign that when they entered into Auschwitz read, work sets you free. Right. It's the same spirit. Just trust me. Just follow me. I'm going to take you into a better place. And that's what this Abshaki saying. <laughs> and these promises of a better life. To turn away from the Lord are as old as the garden, aren't they? The devils, you shall not surely die. You will be like God. But the false teachers that Peter talked about in 2 Peter, it says this about them. It says, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. It says, while they promise them liberty. They promise them liberty. No, you don't have to be walking this holy life, this tight life, this life of purity and holiness. No, it says through lewdness and lust, they allure them. They promise them liberty, it says, but they themselves are the slaves of corruption. But here's the big mistake this Rabshakeh made is when he compared the gods of the nations. He goes through all that. Could any of these other gods, when he compared the gods of the nations and the nation's failure to not be invaded by Assyria, when he compared them to the God of Israel, and he uses logic to make his case. So he rattles off the name of six nations that were literally steamrolled over by Assyria. And he said, look, the gods of these nations weren't able to deliver them from the hands of the king of Assyria. So who is this God of this little small backwater town in Judah, Jerusalem? We're a world-class empire. We own the world. And they judged the God of a city by what the city was like. I'm saying Jerusalem was just a little backwater town back then. And all these other great cities and nations just fell left and right. And one commentator said, though, when he said those words at the end of what we read there in verse 35, he says, something snapped somewhere when he said that. Can the Lord deliver you? When he said that, something snapped, something snapped in heaven. He had stepped over the line 
and saying that. He had gone too far. And for Assyria, that was the beginning of the end. And so nothing has changed, has it? So when we step out to trust the Lord, our Rabshakis are right there in our ear, aren't they? They tell you, don't trust the Bible or those teaching you. They're deceiving you. Just look around. Look at the nation. Look at all the trials. It obviously doesn't work. God is powerless. And who is the Lord that you should trust him? And so how do you deal with that? How do you deal with public criticism? That it will come. It will come when we take a stand. And it's in verse 36. If you look at that, it says, but the people, when he said all that to him, the people held their peace and answered him, not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. In other words, no comment. No comment. I hear what you're saying, but we're not answering you. We're not going to reason. We're not going to reason with you with what you said. So the one thing we have to understand is a lot of Christians, our families and friends, they will not understand that we trust in a written word and a written promise. They're not going to understand that. They have the same Bible that we have, don't they? But for whatever reason, they're choosing not to believe all of it, only parts of it. My thing is, is the God of the Bible not doing anything supernatural today like he did back then and all through the book? I'm saying he is. And that's what we have to believe. So the best thing to do when you get persecuted for trusting the Lord or harassed or misunderstood is just, I would say, to smile and move on. Because a lot of times people mean well, but they mean well. I doesn't mean I want to fill my mind with all their doubt and unbelief in them meaning well. Or if I'm trusting the Lord for something, right? You don't have to justify what you're doing. You don't have to try to make everything make sense to them because it won't make sense to them. It just won't. First Peter 2.23 says this about Jesus, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And that's a lot of times what we have to do, right? It's no comment. I'm just putting this case in the Lord's hands. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're saying. And I'm just putting it in the Lord's hands. And when it's in your mind, you can't reason with the devil either, can you? He'll reason you right out of your faith. And so it's just a matter. You just have to keep your trust in the Lord. But there is something that we can do. And that's my last point. And that is trust the Lord and commit the situation to him. And that's what Hezekiah did. So look in chapter 19, verse 1. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it. When he heard the report, they came back and told him what this man said, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and did what? It says he went into the house of the Lord. He went into the temple. And he sends his top advisors, the three top advisors, sends them to Isaiah the prophet to give him a full report and find out what to do. He sends them, and then he says, ask Isaiah the prophet to pray. And Isaiah doesn't need to pray. He's already got a word from the Lord for them. Look in verses 6 to 7. Of chapter 19, it says this. It says, And Isaiah said to them, these men that Hezekiah had sent to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. He says, Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And here we are again. The battle is once again about words, thoughts, the mind. Isaiah gives him a clear, concise, confident, and encouraging word. And all Hezekiah has to do in the people is to do is what? They have to believe the words that were spoken. None of this has happened yet. 
And that's what they're required to do, isn't it? They're still outnumbered. That army's still out there. And Isaiah has given them a word that they have to trust, right? That's what it's all about. In the meantime, in this story, the Rabshakeh's gone back to give a report to Sennacherib. And in his answer, he sends a letter to Hezekiah, and he sends it by messengers, and it has the same old dribble that he's been giving him the whole time. Don't let God deceive you. No other God has delivered their nation. Just look at him. That's basically what he sends this letter to Hezekiah. Hezekiah gets that letter, and it says that he took that letter took it into the temple, and it says he spread that letter with all that it said, all the negative, all of how God couldn't help them and they were going to be destroyed. Took that into the temple, and it says he spread it out before the Lord. Set it before the Lord. And praise, look what it says in verses 14 to 19. And Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And it says, And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know something, that you are the Lord God, you alone. And that is a model prayer right there. The first thing he does in verse 15 is he acknowledges the sovereignty of God over all the nations in creation. And that's a good thing to do whenever you pray. Is The first thing is acknowledge God as the sovereign creator of all, created the heavens and the earth. You're not only reminding him, but you're reminding yourself. And it will encourage you when you pray. It puts things in perspective. And then the next thing he does is ask God to listen and see and hear the reproach the enemy is giving to the living God. He's saying he's not just reviling any God, not a God that doesn't exist. He's speaking against you, the living God. And that sounds a lot like what David said. We said Hezekiah and David were a lot alike because when Goliath came out and he sat there and reviled David and Israel and their armies, David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's what Hezekiah is doing, the same thing. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine coming at me saying, God won't help me, won't do anything for me? Who is he to defy the armies of the living God? And that's the difference right there. The other thing is, you know, we see down there verses 17 and 18. We've talked about this last week. It doesn't deny reality because he says, truly, Lord, the kingdoms of Assyria, they have laid waste the nations in their lands. He says, we've seen it. And they have cast their gods into the fire for they were not gods, but the work of man's hands wood and stone. He doesn't deny it. You can't deny you have cancer. You're broke. A withered arm. You're lonely. You battle lust. You can't deny the reality of your circumstances. But like we said, you can deny the devil the right to keep them on you. Surely I have delivered you, is what he told Joshua before the city ever fell. And right there, surely, that's a surely, he has borne our pains. And if he's borne them, we don't have to. 
That's what the Bible teaches. And Isaiah says, who has believed our report? Who has believed that? And the last thing we see in his prayer is faith knows that God will answer to spread his glory throughout all the earth. And that's verse 19. Now, therefore, Lord God, I pray you save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. God is zealous for his own glory. He's also zealous for the welfare of his children. God had compassion, didn't he? You read the book of Exodus and it says the groanings of the children of Israel came up before him. And he heard that. As a result of that, he sent Moses down there. God's not unconcerned about our suffering, but he's also just as concerned about his glory. Because that's what it said when they came out of Egypt by his strong and mighty hand. His glory was known throughout all the earth, wasn't it? And God is concerned about his glory. It's not either or, it's both. He's concerned about us and he's also concerned about his glory. So let me ask you, did God hear a prayer like that that was given? Look in verse 20. He spread that paper before the Lord. He prayed his prayer. In verse 20 it says, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib king of Assyria, I have heard. And this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. And he goes on to say his destruction was going to come. And it did. That's the second time that Isaiah gave Hezekiah a thus saith the Lord. And if you're walking with the Lord and your heart's right with him and you're trusting him, he'll give you those kinds of words of encouragement. He'll give you a thus saith the Lord that witnesses with you that you can know everything is going to be all right. That's what he did. And that's what he'll do. Did it work? Was the promise true? Turn over and read in that chapter verses 35 to 37. So it says it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the, the angel of the Lord did this killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 men. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So whose word prevailed? <laughs> the Lord's word. It was an old Rakshaki. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained in Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, that his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And his other son reigned in his place. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that one. You could say it didn't seem to work for anybody else. Hezekiah could have said the same thing. It didn't seem to work for anybody else. But guess who it did work for? Didn't work for any other king, did it? Didn't work for the king of Israel. Didn't work for the kings of all these nations. But he had his heart right and fully trusted the Lord. And it worked for him, didn't it? Despite what was said to him. Didn't work for every king except faithful King Hezekiah and Jerusalem. And I'm saying, will it work for you and me? And Greg quoted this the other night at the prayer meeting. The eyes of the Lord, it's still true, run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him or completely his. Not asking us to be perfect, but we just have to completely give him our heart. And he says he's looking to show himself strong. And we see right here he did for Hezekiah. And not just him, it was the, the remnant left in Jerusalem showed himself faithful to them because they had their hearts right too. We have to remember this. 
That faith works because of a godly life. That obedience is vital to faith. It's vital. Obedience. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. That's not the problem, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. We've got to make sure we got clean hearts, don't we? That's what 1 John 3 tells us. Then we have confidence that whatever we ask according to his will, he'll give us. He's faithful. And the other thing is when you take a stand for the Lord, expect it to be challenged. It'll be challenged by family, friends, enemies, sometimes by well-meaning Christians. And the question you're going to have to answer when they're challenging you and circumstances are staring you in the face, now on whom do you trust? And it is not easy a lot of times, is it? It is not always easy. Those fiery trials are not easy. So Ezekiah, he had the greatest faith of any king of Israel, it says, because he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. That's what it says in the word. And the question is, do we? Do we trust in the Lord God of Israel? His faith wasn't great because he denied the circumstances he saw, but because he trusted that God would keep his word and change those circumstances to resemble what he promised, which was deliverance. And God did. He did that very thing. When the situation looks hopeless, the last thing we're saying that is the time to take your case before the Lord in prayer. Remind God of who he is, the sovereign God of the universe. Remind God of how the devil and others are trying to get you to doubt his faithfulness, of how the devil is blaspheming the goodness of God towards his saints. And try, the devil, through others, he usually works through others, he's trying to deny that there is a living God who answers prayer. We've got to take a stand that he does answer prayer. A living God. Amen. amen. I'm glad I got some amens today. That's great. It really is. You just have to know that the Lord God, the living God, hears the cries of his people. And we have to be like the people of Jerusalem. We have to rest in that. Be strengthened by that. Lean on that. Like Paul said, Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us three times in the Old Testament this story of Hezekiah and his trust in you, Lord. And, and the words will come. It's a battle of words, Lord, that the, the devil directly or through others a lot of times will try to discourage us from trusting you fully and saying that you, the living God, won't provide for us like you promised. And we just ask, Lord, that you'll put it in our hearts here to grab hold and to cleave to you and to follow you and to be obedient to you, Lord, that we can see your faithfulness in our lives, see you meet our needs, and also, Lord, that we can give glory to you, for you deserve all the glory for what you've done for us. You've rescued us out of a dark pit, Lord. We deserve nothing, and you filled us with your Spirit, washed us in your blood, and given us eternal life. And without a thankfulness for that, Lord, we should want to see you glorified in our lives and on this earth. So I thank you, Lord, for being with us here today and speaking to us and for being our God in Jesus' name. Amen.